Welcome to the 34th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can now be pre-ordered through Amazon and Barnes & Noble Books. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, when you're sliding downhill, the first thing you need to do is slow your fall. That's probably the best visual for what's happening. We've passed the 100 million doses administered mark. Approximately 25% of the nation is now immune, at least following a first shot level of immunity. And manufacturers continue to ramp up the supply. President Biden has set May 1st as the date that all Americans will become eligible for the vaccine. But remember, it will still be two more months before they are fully immunized and protected. And that will only apply to the people who sign up estimated now to be 60 to 70% of individuals age 16 and over. Approximately 2.4 million doses are being given each day, and the number of cases and daily deaths is slowly decreasing, and a very positive sign, the number of deaths amongst the elderly is declining dramatically. However, we're starting to see areas of the country where vaccine supply is projected to exceed demand in the very near future. Vaccine testing of children aged six months to 11 years has begun, and we should know about the safety issues soon. The good news so far is that there have been no problems. An encouraging study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that people who had recovered from COVID-19 responded to the first dose of vaccine with antibody titers similar to levels that people who hadn't had the infection responded only after the second dose. In another study, researchers reported in a letter to JAMA Open Access that the number of people who had been infected with COVID-19 was most likely twice as many as the published numbers had shown. Jeremy, this is what we said six months ago. With a 40% asymptomatic rate and many people having difficulty getting tested, the 50% number is about what we would estimate. Seeing it quantified using serum from a random population of people applying for life insurance provides more evidence that achieving herd immunity is closer than some people have predicted. Remember that herd immunity means that rather than one infected person transmitting the virus to three others, as happens in unmanaged conditions with the coronavirus, the actual number becomes less than one. And once that number is less than one, the virus slowly disappears. The reason for this low level of transmission is that two out of the three people who would have become sick are now immune from a combination of vaccine and prior infection. 
Unfortunately, this calculation of getting close to herd immunity by the end of the summer doesn't include the probability, or at least the possibility, of transmission happening with newer mutant variants. If rather than one person giving the virus to three people, it now can spread to five, then the percent of the population would need to be immune. The percent of the population would need to be either vaccinated or recovered from an actual infection would become much greater. And that of course is the great concern that various public health officials and physicians have going forward since there are so many strains that are now evolving around the globe. Robbie, the most common question we're getting is whether vaccinated grandparents can see their unvaccinated grandkids. I remember I suggested covering this uh, before our last show and you told me to wait for a little bit until this week, uh, since you thought that new guidance might be coming. What's happened and, and what are your thoughts and what is your advice? Jeremy, the CDC, as we predicted, did release new guidance on this question soon after the show. It said that fully vaccinated Americans can gather with other vaccinated people indoors without masks or social distancing. And that the same can apply when vaccinated grandparents or other relatives interact with healthy children and grandchildren, since obviously they'd be below the age of 16 and therefore not eligible for vaccination. Now think of the risk from both sides. With grandparents being immunized, they would be protected. And since kids, particularly young children, rarely become very ill, the psychological consequences of continued isolation seems greater than the risk of the child becoming infected and critically sick. And the kids would only be at risk on the unlikely chance, or I'd say the rare chance, that vaccinated people can then become infected and transmit the virus despite having no symptoms. Putting all the pieces together, the risks aren't zero, but they're very minimal. The one exception, however, is when one of the grandkids has a severe underlying medical condition that makes him or her very vulnerable should they become sick. It won't surprise me if we see additional guidance from the CDC expanding the opportunity for vaccinated individuals to engage in other behaviors that many haven't done in over a year, like indoor dining and gathering in larger groups. However, at this point, the CDC still cautions against large gatherings and urges all people to wear a mask and physically distance themselves when in public. Many policy experts feel that the CDC should have been more lenient in its guidance, particularly in the areas of travel, dining, and retail. In contrast to the CDC's relatively conservative recommendations, baseball's opening day is April 5th, and the Texas Rangers are planning on having 40,000 fans in the stands. Few other states, however, are likely to follow and allow this size crowd. As more and more people become vaccinated, the questions listeners are sending are more focused on the psychological consequences of the pandemic rather than the risks of dying. 
When it comes to mental health, what's new? Jeremy, you've been wise to ask frequently about the dangers from mental health issues during this period of COVID-19. We continue to see extremely high numbers of people seeking mental health services across the United States. One of the things that's amazing is the massive increase in virtual visits, hundreds of times greater than in the past. Prior to 2020, virtual visits for mental health services were around 1% of total mental health visits. Last year, they were between 50 and 75% of the total. You mentioned at the start of the show about my upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And this is a great example. For years, we've known that virtual visits would be far more convenient for patients. And yet few psychiatrists or psychologists offered this option. The reason? Cultural. Doctors view their office as the zenith of medical care, even when the data shows that virtual care is equally effective relative to clinical outcomes and it avoids people having to miss work or school. What changed last year was the pandemic and the risk to the clinician and office staff. Suddenly these alternatives to in-person care became standard. Physician culture is an incredibly powerful force can make doctors heroes in times of crisis, such as during the worst of COVID-19, but it also can lead them to undervalue access and patient convenience and new technology when the crisis abates. Robbie, a listener asked about the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots. What's going on there? Jeremy, this has been a mess and the problems seem to be getting worse for the company with time. For background, here's what happened. A tiny number of patients were found to develop blood clots in their legs that could travel to the lungs, causing a pulmonary embolus, or occlusion of a major vein in the brain, a very major life-threatening problem. Listeners should remember that people who haven't been vaccinated still get these problems on occasion. And when researchers analyzed the frequency following vaccination, they found it was relatively similar to what otherwise would have been expected. This is a powerful example of how politics impacts what should be objective science. There's a huge internation battle happening between the United Kingdom, where the vaccine is manufactured, and the countries in the European Union. And then there's the regulatory hyper-caution an agency like the European Medicines Agency, which is the equivalent of FDA, doesn't want to harm people for medical treatment at any cost, even if on net thousands of lives would be saved by administering the vaccine compared to what even might have been a small potential risk from the vaccine and such. What they did is they called a timeout What's worrisome is that as a result of these actions of halting the vaccine administration, we not only will see added deaths, but I worry that people's confidence in the vaccine will diminish 
accelerating vaccine hesitancy and leading more people to be vulnerable in the future, augmenting the number of people who will die as a consequence, and I'll say once again, far more than the potential risk of the blood clots created. As you know, I've been very critical of the US response to COVID-19, feeling it hasn't been strategic or consistent. Europe now appears to have leapfrogged our country in foolishness, with cases soaring across the continent and deaths continuing to rise rapidly. Every nation should be pushing vaccine administration aggressively, not limiting it. Most recently, the European Medicines Agency authorized the vaccine to be used once again. Most countries have restarted their vaccination programs, although Scandinavian nations have not. Jeremy, this particular vaccine has been seen as a vital part of ending the global pandemic. Among developing nations, the vaccine was felt to be the best hope due to its low cost, minimal refrigeration requirements and projected availability. Three billion doses had been planned to be delivered. What these nations with few other options will do going forward isn't clear. In a press release this week, on Monday, AstraZeneca said that its vaccine in the US trials had been shown to be 79% effective against symptomatic disease and 100% effective against severe disease, hospitalizations, and death. They also said that there were no cases of thrombosis amongst the recipients. Yesterday, the data came under fire with 11 members of the National Institute of Health's committee that evaluates clinical trials pointing out that the most recent vaccine data, meaning the data from the most recent time period had been deleted from the analysis. They noted that this made the information outdated and potentially misleading. Other researchers speculate based on what they've seen so far that including all of the data would have diminished the actual efficacy by as much as 10%. Ultimately, we'll need to wait until the FDA looks at the phase three studies from the United States and makes a determination about the emergency use authorization request. And then of course, assuming it's passed through regulatory oversight, We'll still have to see how many people will be willing to accept this vaccine, given all of the controversy. A listener said he was planning to have back surgery later this month, but had a mild case of the coronavirus a couple of weeks ago. How long do you think he should wait? Data from England reported in the Journal of Anesthesia that the mortality from surgery does go up after a person has COVID-19. And it then returns to normal after seven weeks, assuming the patient is asymptomatic. This study looked at over 100,000 patients in hospitals from multiple countries. The research found that the risk of death was four times higher in the first two weeks after having COVID-19, then three times greater than normal over the next two weeks, and down to double 
over the following two weeks and relatively safe by seven weeks. However, people with continued symptoms remained at elevated risk even after two months. As is true for so much of the information about the virus, patients and their physicians need to balance the higher risk of a surgical complication, which is usually pneumonia, versus the risks of delay, be it for treatment of cancer or cardiovascular disease. If we've learned anything over the past year about the coronavirus, it's that every choice involves balancing one set of risks against another. Robbie, the CDC changed the distance expectation for students from six feet to three feet. Uh, on what basis did they make that decision? Jeremy, as we discuss the coronavirus, the truth, the impact on kids from lack of social interaction and in-person education has been massive. Some educators estimate these students will never catch up. For this reason, there's been growing pressure to reopen schools on a full-time basis. But the requirement for six-foot distancing makes accommodating all of the students at any one time impossible. As such, the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, has been looking at the question of whether the six-foot distancing expectation is needed when students are wearing masks. A variety of studies have been recently published that compared infection rates in schools that use the six-foot guidance versus those that require only three feet of separation. And they've all pointed to minimum risk for diminishing the distance expectation, particularly for elementary and middle school children. As an example, one study published in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases compared two schools in Massachusetts, one with six-foot distancing and one with three-foot requirement, and found no difference in the rate of transmission between the two. At the same time, as you might predict, the president of the National Teachers Union disagreed with the CDC's new standard and was skeptical that the findings were objective rather than a matter of school district and parental convenience. I suspect and predict this debate will continue. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in this pandemic. What's encouraging to you this week? Jeremy, it says a lot that early in the pandemic, I struggled to find something positive to say, and now the challenge is figuring out what to leave out. As is often the case with this virus, little is 100% assured, but quite a bit of good news this week points us in an optimistic direction. First, epidemiologists have been keeping a close eye on South Africa, where one of the three global variants, B1351, began and has become dominant. Here, the number of cases per day has dropped from a high in January of 22,000 to around 1,000 per day, less than 5% of January's numbers. And unlike in January, when the percent of positive COVID test was 30%, it's now only 5%, indicating that the decrease is real and not just a reflection of less testing. And this improvement has happened without large-scale vaccination or strict social distancing requirements. The question is how to explain the decline. One possibility is that it reflects so many people having been infected 
that immunity is broad. But maybe it's the publicity around the dangers and that people have begun to wear masks and reduce social contact on their own without governmental prodding. In any case, the current FDA vaccines appear to work against this virus, although, as we've said in the show before, not as effectively as, it, as they did against the original coronavirus. The second piece of positive news comes from Brazil, where the P1 variant dominates. Here, the Pfizer vaccine was tested in the laboratory against this variant, and based on an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, appears to be highly effective. Scientists use blood containing the antibodies that have been produced in recipients after getting the vaccine against the test virus that contained the same spike protein as this new strain. And they found the neutralizing ability of the antibodies to be similar to the efficacy that they had found against the original strain. And remember, it's this modified spike protein that allows this mutant form to more readily infect human cells and increase the transmissibility. This finding is important since unlike in South Africa, cases are surging in Brazil and daily deaths now exceed the numbers in the United States despite a population one third smaller. Moreover, this mutant form is being seen in a growing number of US states, although so far with very small numbers of cases. Although this finding of neutralizing antibodies looks positive, both Pfizer and Moderna are evaluating the possibility of recommending a third vaccine dose to boost antibody production even higher, as well as creating a modified vaccine that includes messenger RNA capable of instructing human cells to make this modified spike protein, which would then generate a more targeted antibody response to the P1 mutant. Once again, there's always a problematic side when it comes to the coronavirus. Because in addition to the P1 variant, Brazil has identified hundreds of other mutants, which create the possibility that an even more dangerous and even more easily transmissible mutant could be on the horizon if the nation can't get the surge in cases under control. And to date, the country has vaccinated only 4% of its people. The third piece of good news is that we now have another vaccine that may become available soon. This one from Novavax, a Maryland-based biotech company. Novavax reported a 96% effectiveness rate for its vaccine at preventing both mild and severe disease in its phase three trials that were conducted in the UK. The US trials are still underway and they'll need to be completed prior to FDA granting emergency use authorization. This vaccine like Pfizer Moderna's requires two doses. And like these other vaccines, the Novavax was 100% effective at preventing severe disease and 86% effective against the more contagious B117 variant from the, from the United Kingdom that had been detected in this case in nearly half of all US states and is becoming the predominant strain in many of them. This Novavax vaccine is different than the other ones that have received the FDA emergency use authorization 
and we've discussed on this show. Rather than injecting messenger RNA or introducing it using a harmless adenovirus and then relying on the recipient's body to produce the spike protein, the Novavax shot injects the protein itself directly, skipping the intermediate steps. Whether this new vaccine ends up being used in the United States or whether it serves to reduce the incidence of disease in other nations, we don't know. Whether this new vaccine ends up being used in the United States or serves to reduce the incidence of disease in other nations, thereby minimizing the risk of a vaccine-resistant strain is uncertain. However, the more people around the globe vaccinated, the safer it will be for everyone, regardless of the country in which they live. The final piece of good news, Alaska announced that it would provide vaccination to anyone 16 years or older. It was the first state to lift all age restrictions. And since then, many other states, including most recently Texas, have followed. And it's a harbinger of what the rest of the country is likely to do over the next six weeks. To date, Alaska has vaccinated over 25% of its population with at least one dose and 90% of seniors in many locations. We're clearly making significant progress as a nation with a high probability of half of the country being vaccinated by early summer. As we said earlier in the show, we're more than 25% of the way there. And with 2.4 million doses a day, we should be able to reach herd immunity sometime by the end of summer. Robbie, numerous listeners wrote in about the article you wrote for Forbes on the flight from hell. What have you heard and what are your takeaways? Jeremy, I wrote the piece out of frustration, not just with the airline industry, but our nation's overall response to COVID-19. When I fly and have to check boxes indicating that I don't have symptoms and haven't come into contact with people who are infected, I wonder how many people who have symptoms or have come in contact with an infected person are checking the yes box. I suspect many are still checking no. And when I board the plane and I'm handed the alcohol white package, I don't bother using it. I know that the plane has been decontaminated and that once that's done, this little alcohol wipe is gonna add no value. It's simply for show. Similarly, when states tell people to quarantine for two weeks after arriving from other states in which COVID is prevalent, it's a lot of words without much impact. If elected officials and airline executives chose to make an impact, they'd put in place approaches to monitor people's compliance and impose penalties when they don't. And I'm not aware of this happening more than a handful of times anywhere. What's most interesting is how much social commentary the piece has created with 99% of people as equally concerned as I was and with them telling their stories as well. 
In total, it's now been read by over a quarter of a million people on Forbes and LinkedIn. Following publication, I did receive a call from an airline industry executive apologizing for what happened. I appreciate it and thank the CEO for reaching out. Robbie, a listener wrote in that he was confused about this idea of transmitting the coronavirus after they were infected and therefore not able to come in direct contact with unvaccinated people. Can you elaborate on how this might happen? Jeremy, as we mentioned earlier in the program, people in governmental and regulatory roles have difficulty authorizing approaches that could be problematic, even when the risk is tiny. To a large degree, I suspect that's the case here. Now, theoretically, someone vaccinated could develop a mild case without symptoms and pass the virus onto another individual. Remember, if a vaccine is 95% effective, it still means that some vaccinated individuals can become sick. But the risks are very low. At least based on data from the pharmaceutical companies, the protection afforded by the current vaccines against symptomatic cases is 97% and 94% against asymptomatic disease two weeks after the second shot. You know, I go back to my comments on the lack of strategy when it comes to the coronavirus. In the earliest episode, I made the analogy to chess. There's an opening game, and that was our initial attempts to keep hospitalized people alive and encourage social distancing for those not yet infected. Neither proved very successful. The nation was overwhelmed, and America lost tens of thousands of lives unnecessarily. Then there was the middle game of creating an effective and safe vaccine. Here, our efforts were brilliant, defying the odds in a dramatic fashion. We now have three approved vaccines and more than 600 million doses have been promised. Now we're at the end game where we must checkmate the virus. There are only three ways to do that. And this is reminiscent of the early days of the pandemic and the discussions we have at that time. The first way is by getting enough people vaccinated to reach herd immunity quickly and watch COVID-19 disappear by year's end when the virus simply can't find enough people at risk to propagate. The second is to reduce the number of cases dramatically through vaccination and then impose strict contact tracing and quarantine requirements to isolate everyone with the virus and thereby drive it out of existence. And the third is to vaccinate as many people who are willing and recognize that it won't be enough and then wait for an additional number of people to become ill with COVID-19 and thereby reach herd immunity. And that third solution will be a race against the entry of new resistant mutants that could rewind the clock and start the transmission process all over again. And if the reality is the third option, then limiting spread only delays the inevitable. It sounds harsh, but it's simply the reality that if we are unable to get people vaccinated and unwilling to impose the restrictions that would be needed for full containment, it is the only choice that we have. 
There has been a lot of social media conversation about the long-term consequences for people recovering after the coronavirus. People report fatigue, headaches, and a variety of other symptoms months after having COVID-19. What's new when it comes to this so-called long hauler phenomenon? Um, and is there anything positive on the horizon? One of the most perplexing aspects of COVID-19 is the multiple ways in which it negatively impacts our bodies. At first, we thought it was a typical upper respiratory virus, like the flu. Then susceptible people leads to pneumonia and an occasion death. Next, we recognize the vascular problems that it produced, leading to damage in a variety of organs. Now it's being seen as creating a very strong immune response in our own bodies, an immune response that attacks our own organs, creating many of the symptoms that we associate with the infection itself. And for a large percentage of people, long-term symptoms months after recovering from the acute infection. These, as you say, are the long haulers. At this point, we're not even sure where to place the difficulties these people experience. In the matrix of alternative explanations. And it's possible that more than one factor is contributing. What we do know is that these prolonged problems, ones that happen both in people with mild as well as severe cases is real and debilitating. The good news is that in a Washington Post report, a moderate number of people said that their symptoms improved after they received one of the currently available vaccines. In an informal survey done by a not-for-profit for people with the problem, but not a scientifically controlled experiment, 207 people reported feeling better, with 70 feeling worse, and 231 unchanged. If the findings are confirmed, there are at least four different reasons the vaccine could have had a salutary impact. The first, of course, is psychological. Being protected from another episode of the infection after a terrible experience the first time would increase the sense of safety and psychological well-being. The second is that the underlying problem in patients with this long hauler type syndrome is residual virus in their bodies and therefore the vaccine would boost immunity levels and address it. The third is what's called viral ghosts. These are particles from the virus, no longer infective, but capable of generating an immune response. And in this scenario, the issue isn't persistent infection, but simply the person's immune response to continued existence of viral pieces. And once again, the vaccine would help to eliminate them. The final possibility is that individuals could continue to have these antibodies attacking their own body months after they recover from infection, despite there being no trace of the virus itself. Scientists from Yale have offered evidence for each of these explanations and how the vaccine 
could clear the body of the virus, eliminate residual particles, and distract the immune system, reducing the post-COVID-19 symptoms. However, at this point, Jeremy, all these explanations remain theoretical. Let me ask you, I'm perplexed by the depth of the divide in our nation politically. I fear we won't be able to pass the legislation needed to protect our country in the future, the kind of legislation that will require bipartisan agreement. And if the coronavirus pandemic with the loss of a half million lives isn't the catalyst, I can't imagine what will be. In Iowa, there are many areas that vote closer to the extremes than the center. As an historian, how has our nation come together in other divisive times? And what do you think will be needed in Iowa to make that happen? Robbie, as much as I hate to say it, you know, I, I honestly don't know what can be done. A lot of people don't know this, but early on in World War II, there was a lot of division about whether or not the United States should get involved in the war. Pearl Harbor did a pretty good job at changing that. However, even then, there were people that only wanted war with Japan and not in Europe. We also had a fairly united media and propaganda effort encouraging Americans at home to work harder to support the troops abroad. We had external enemies, and we could put a face on them. We had the Nazis and Hitler. We had the Japanese and Hirohito. After September 11th, we largely became united behind President Bush against Al-Qaeda. We had a lot of national pride, and again, we could put a face on the enemy, Osama bin Laden. This situation is so very different. We have no real external enemy we can rally around and blame uh, for the sake of protecting our country. We can't put a face on a virus. You know, and the state of the news media in this nation is awful. On one hand, you have CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, which are, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, barely more than a propaganda arm for the DNC. And on the other hand, you have Fox News and New York Post and others, which are essentially a propaganda arm for the Republicans. There's no real, honest, middle-of-the-road media. And most Americans only consume the news from the side they agree with. Therefore, we have people in this country living in two completely different realities. And politicians are doing what they do best, playing politics and saying whatever they can to further their agenda and get reelected. We also have people who maybe lost a friend or family member to COVID, and they blame Donald Trump and the Republicans for their family member's death. On the other hand, we have people who lost their small business or job and are struggling financially and mentally, and maybe they don't know anybody who died from the virus, and they may very well blame Pelosi and the Democrats for the shutdowns and their economic destruction. Until we have news media and politicians in this country that are not intentionally furthering this divide and encouraging these two completely different realities, I, I honestly don't know what can be done. Diversity of thought and opinion is extremely important to a strong democracy. Having two sides that are not even living in the same reality is dangerous and scary. This needs to be fixed as soon as possible before any sort of divide can be healed. Robbie, on the topic of politics, a lot has been made of the exchange between prominent Republican Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci about whether or not masks are needed post-vaccination. Rand even said to Fauci, quote, you're telling everybody to wear a mask, whether they've had an infection or a vaccine. If people have had the vaccine or have had the infection, if we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? End quote. 
many prominent physicians I have seen on social media seem to be on both sides of the fence here uh, and have a, a very large degree of diver diversity in their opinion around this. What are your thoughts on this now famous exchange? As we keep saying on coronavirus, the truth, politics seems to have as much or a greater impact on our nation's response to COVID-19 than science. Let's look at the facts. If you recover from COVID-19, there is a small chance that you can be reinfected. If a vaccine has a 95% efficacy, there's a small chance that you can still become infected with the disease and transmit it to others. What we're looking at here are two different viewpoints about risk. Dr. Fauci is saying, if there's a small chance, why not have people wear masks that will diminish that chance, particularly given the mutant variants that sit on the horizon? Dr. Paul is saying, why restrict people's freedom? when the chances are so low. I don't know whether he said it or not. He'd probably point to the fact that people do die in car accidents and we still allow cars on the road when it's not for emergency reasons that they're traveling. What we're looking here is a lot of smoke and very little true substance. There's a small risk and the question becomes as a society, how much do you want to impose restrictions and limit freedoms to save what is a small number of lives? Is that a choice that should be made by the government or a choice that should be made by individuals? To tell you the truth, Jeremy, I didn't follow this drama very closely. I prefer to spend my time reading the medical journals and reading the scientific studies that provide the facts that we provide on this show. The facts are you can still get sick after you've been infected. You can still come down with a mild case that can be transmitted to others after you've had the vaccine. Both of these are very rare and people will have to decide, is there a risk they want to take and how restrictive actually is it wearing a mask? Ravi, I've heard a lot about the relative death rates in Florida and California. Uh, what do you make of the data? Jeremy, this is a hotly debated topic and one for which I doubt agreement will happen anytime in the near future. Those who support the more laissez-faire approach of Florida point to the state's death rate being no worse than the national average, despite keeping businesses open, bringing students back to classes relatively quickly and encouraging tourism. Those who defend what California did note that if 
California had the same mortality rate as Florida, 6,000 more Californians would have died. Or phrased differently, if Florida had the same rate as California, 3,000 of its people would still be alive. From this perspective, the economic and educational from this perspective, the economic and educational consequences were the lesser of two evils. If I had to call the fight, I'd say it was a split decision, but one that so far favors Florida's looser guidelines, particularly relative to schools over California's. Supporting that conclusion, both the LA Times and New York Times, two newspapers that tend to lean to the left of center, wrote articles recently more critical of California's restrictive environment and more positive towards Florida's approach. The LA Times said, quote, California imposed myriad restrictions that battered the economy and have left most public school students learning at home for a year. The New York Times wrote about Florida, an extensive piece pointing out the booming real estate market and low unemployment rate that came from early reopening and concluded, quotes, much of the state has a boomtown feel, a sense of making up for months of lost time. Robbie, one last question for you. I read that our nation saw a massive decline in longevity last year with the death rate increasing by about 15% over the previous 12 months, making it the most deadly year in history. Obviously the death from COVID-19 accounted a lot for the additional mortality, but were there more to these numbers? Jeremy, COVID-19 took hundreds of thousands of lives and it did reduce life expectancy by slightly more than a year. In 2020, it was the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. But as you suggest, that's just a superficial explanation for the totality of things that contributed to this incredibly high and tragic mortality. As an example, 88% of people who died had two or more chronic diseases, many of which could have been prevented or far better controls such as hypertension, diabetes, heart and lung disease. And had that happened, the number of deaths would have been significantly less. Moreover, although on average life expectancy declined by slightly more than a year, among black individuals it went down 2.7 years, while for white individuals, the decline was just a single year. And here socioeconomic factors had a major impact with black workers disproportionately being in jobs that required them to come to work rather than being able to connect virtually and having to take buses and subways, places of close person-to-person -person contact. But even this isn't the fuller answer. As an example, when a white and a black patient came to the ER with exactly the same symptoms, the white person was tested twice as often during the early phases of the pandemic when testing kits were in short supply. And when patients needed a procedure, the black person received 40% less pain medication on average, despite both individuals having equivalent pain experiences. The reason for the care failures and racism 
wasn't simply economic or overt bigotry. Instead, it was the physician culture that undervalues prevention, undervalues avoidance of complications, at least as compared to intervention, and blinds doctors to their racial biases. This culture is the theme of uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. And listeners wanting more information on the topic can check out the website robertperlmd.com. There they'll find free items they can obtain when they pre-order the book and additional information on this crucial area of medicine, an area that has negative impacts on patients as well as the people who provide the care to them. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.